0: Welcome back, everybody, to the Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast. Coming to you from the mega city metropolis of Toronto, I am your host, Eric Anthony, and I am very, very happy for this episode to be traveling overseas to my favorite continent. Well, the only continent that I visited other than my own. We're going back to Great Britain. We are in England, correct, guys? It's England we're in?
1: Yes. Yeah, It's <laughs>
0: It's England. So I got with me today Jonathan Stevenson and Luke Kemp. The uh, the team, the creators of their Kickstarter, Disco Knots. Thank you guys for coming, for reaching out to me and coming onto the show. I really appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to this. How are you? Uh,
1: yeah, fine. Thank you, and thank you for having us. Yeah, very good. Thank you
0: for having us as well. We we just finished uh, having a little chit chat before we press record about uh, Euro soccer um or euro 2020 that's playing played in 2021 are you guys enjoying the tournament are you excited for it
1: i I've, I've unfortunately been quite busy i've seen the england games i've seen a few other games here and there but um, ordinarily if i have the time i'd like to watch every single match of the tournament and i'm a little bit gutted that i haven't had the time to do it this year um because what well, with you know various things going on that Work most importantly, um, but but yeah, I've enjoyed what I've seen. Um, Italy look really strong this year. France look look really strong. So yeah it's the it's, it's fun tournaments. Going to be interesting to see what happens.
2: Yeah, uh, for me, you only ever really see me watch the Euros or World Cup. Any other thing, I'm not. I'm not a domestic football fan. So this is the time when I actually watch the games and I get to enjoy outside of of knowing who's the best player so it's
0: quite fun yeah it's it's always nice in the summer it's it's exciting that right now you got the Copa America the Euro Cup and then next year we get the World Cup like back to back so this is kind of fun to have all of this international soccer buzz uh taking place especially after you know this last this 2020 summer was such a downer and and a lot of this past year has been so like cooped up it's nice to have something to be excited for so that's that's nice
1: yeah, it's it's really nice to see fans back in the stadiums as well. Um, yeah, we were watching a lot of football, just empty stands, but the with the, the noise of the crowd kind of pumped in by the TV station, and it was it was so disconcerting to see empty stands but the noise of the crowd. So it's it's nice to see them back now.
0: Yeah, for sure. Even uh, me and my wife enjoy watching F one. And I'm, uh, mm-hmm. I like seeing fans once again start being in the crowd and, and being part of the uh, you know the podium celebration. It's, it's not the same without the fans. Really, that's what it's all about, right? Yeah. It's, sports has always been about the, the crowd being a participant as well. So uh, it's nice. Yeah. It's the atmosphere yeah. that
2: it creates. Yeah, yeah, for it, sure. It really, really makes it something different, really
0: elevates it. You don't appreciate it until they're gone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. How are things there for you guys? I have a a fellow podcasting friend who uh, is in, oh, I keep forgetting the the town he's from, a little small town at the southern part of England. But uh, what's it like as far as the COVID and the restrictions for you guys? Are things slowly opening up and getting better?
1: Yeah, um, we're kind of largely back to normal. um, For the most part, there's still restrictions around like in uh, pubs, it's still table service, um, and you can't sort of get up from your table or anything like that. And it's if if you do get up from your table to use the toilet or whatever, you have to put on a mask. Mm-hmm. It's still masks on public transport and in shops, but where it feels a lot more normal than it did just you know maybe a month ago. The fact that shops are open at all is is something. Um, and there is a lot more people slowly on public transport, um, and I think they're looking at the 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 the, the of next month. Restrictions are lifted. Asks uh, well, obviously people still can, but they'll stop being compulsory. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at being you know less than a month out from from no restrictions at all.
0: Yeah, that that'll be nice and strange. At the same time of having to you become so accustomed to the behavior of, oh, oh, I forgot my mask and keeping distance and not sure. You know, all of these little things that are good for the safety of everybody. But I wonder what it will be like to be like, really, we can we can do this now. (laughs) It'll be nice.
1: I think I'll be sticking with the mask for a little while. Just, uh, yeah, ask for, uh, I don't know, just because it feels kind of normal, bizarrely now. Um, although I have had both my jabs, in theory, I uh, in theory I can't get anything. But um, no, it's become it's become kind of a comfort thing for a lot of people. I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. Better safe than sorry.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So let's get let's get into this Kickstarter conversation, guys. I wanna I wanna talk a little bit both about your backgrounds and your um, your connection to getting into comics. But let's start it off with Disco Knots, the Kickstarter. How did it come together? What's it about? And what can people look forward to?
1: Um, so I, it initially, I think, came about because I was, I'd been writing for, like, small press anthologies and stuff for a little while, and I wanted to stretch myself. I wanted to write something that was different to what I would normally write. Um, and, yeah, I was toying around with some ideas one night, and I... I Honestly, don't know where it came from. But I decided on this like disco version of the 18. Um, yeah, it's like the 18 meets the BGs in space. And uh, I was working. I was an editor at Titan Comics at the time, and Luke was interning as a as an art assistant. And I told him the the basic outline in the in the kitchen. And I think he was a little bit baffled by it at first, <laughs> um, but we'd already kind of, you know, we'd kind of sized each other up a little bit. And He knew I liked to write stuff and I knew that, you know, I'd seen him sketching at lunchtimes mm-hmm. and stuff at his desk. So I knew he was an artist and I'd looked over his shoulder and peeked in his, uh, in his sketch pad to see if he was any good or not. Um, so, yeah, it kind of, we started then talking about the idea together and it, yeah, it became something that we wanted to, we wanted to do, uh, like together, the pair of us, um, and it's, uh, it's just, it's very silly. <laughs> it's it's this silly disco-themed kind of space romp, but also I, I like to think that there's, there's kind of other stuff going on below the surface if if, if you want. A fun time and just a, a silly comic, it's that. Uh, but if you scratch a little deeper, uh, I, I like to think we've put kind of more layers there. Um, and if, if you want to take more from it, then it's it's there to take. But if you don't, then that's fine as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's the best type of, uh, I think, when you're trying... To, it's almost like a Pixar movie in a way where there's something definitely there to appeal to the children. But if you watch it and listen close enough, there's something that the adults are the only ones who might understand it if you dig a little deeper or see the, like you said, the layers that are being written into it. So that, that's very interesting. It makes it like a, a two-tier type of read.
1: Yeah, hopefully. That's that's what I was going for. Yeah, something that was very simple and yeah, almost childlike on the surface in that it was – kind of one of the inspirations was the animated shows we grew up with, uh, the real Ghostbusters and E-Man and Brave Star, uh, So we kind of wanted to emulate the look and feel of that, uh, which is why it's quite episodic. Um, issue one is, is kind of standalone. There's a little bit that carries over, but it's mostly a whole story. And then issue two, if we get to do that, um, is, is a very similar thing in that it's a, it's a self-contained story. Um, and then three and four are a, a two-parter. The kind of uh, overall arc is the, the kind of bad guy behind everything. But within that, they are separate stories. Um, and, yeah, again, that's from those animated shows that were, you know, they pick up with a completely new story every week.
0: Right. Um, you, you guys aged yourself, I think, by mentioning Brave Star, He-Man. Uh, I didn't know if anybody else watched Brave Star. And when I sometimes mention it, people are like, I don't remember that. I'm not sure what that was.
1: <laughs> what, what, I, I, think, I think I aged myself. I don't think I aged Luke, <laughs> Okay.
0: <but laughs> what year were you born, Jonathan?
1: <laughs> I was born uh, in Orwell's uh, year, 1984.
0: Yeah, uh, Same as me. Very nice. <laughs> cool. Great year, <laughs> um, Luke. For you, when you heard this pitch for Disco Knots, and at first it was baffling to you. Um, what made you come around to it to say, "Yeah, I'm going to give this a try"? This this sounds like something I want to sink my teeth into. Uh,
2: so, when I first heard, when I had the initial pitch, the kind of the rough, the rough idea of a rough idea, as it were. Um, I had in my head something completely different to what Disconorce is now. And it kind of, to me, it felt like a, almost like a Power rangers S type thing, but like spangly disco suits, that kind of thing. It never, it didn't really have any any character. It was only kind of, I think, it was about a year later or so, something like that, where we decided to revisit it. I, I had done some um, character designs. When you get given characters written down like the Boogie, Kitty Cat, dynamite all that kind of stuff you have to draw them because yeah, like you, you just you have to see what comes out um so for me to really get onto that it was actually seeing the character the character descriptions that jonathan provided because that fleshed out the vibe that we wanted and the way that we wanted to go with it so that's what hooked me really was to see the thought that he put into it you know because again you know my my experience with with drawing comics is two three four pages doing it for for pictures or for like small anthologies and Jonathan was three four five six seven eight page scripts hmm. But when he pitched an idea for something that's twenty six to thirty pages it's a whole different ball game because you have to think about it in a longer form you can't just do something and do a twist ending where you can't have you like, have to think about everything the world the characters everything has to play a part so that's what really kind of brought me into it is the fact that he thought so much about these guys. He gave me descriptions, rough ideas of who he wanted me to base them off, or what he wanted them to look like, and then it kind of yeah evolved from there.
0: Yeah, and it's so funny how in both of you guys answering those questions, we age ourselves because you mentioned Power Rangers, so you, <laughs> <laughs> so we all kind of get an idea when we grew up and what it was that was uh, influencing us. So yeah, you make an interesting point because when you are. Um, starting out and in, in pitching ideas to people or, or even just trying to make a name for yourself, these anthologies, you get a, a limited amount of time to really, um, you know, show it's almost like a tryout. Every time you're out there, you want to, you got 15 minutes to play the game. Let's see what you got. And hopefully you get, you know, a header in the net, if you will. But um, when you're now working on a book with 37 pages, because that's what Disco Knots is going to be, right? About 30, 37 pages, complete story. I- Thirty six, yeah. Thirty-six pages. So now you're really working with um so much more time because the you know, I've heard artists and writers mention that to understand a comic book, look at the page as a certain amount of time taking place and now it's up to the artist to take the script and see how he with the amount of panels he uses, the positioning of the panels, how much time is going across that page, and when you're doing it like an episode. Of, a, of an animated show, if you will, there's a lot of story that gets told in 21 minutes of a cartoon mm-hmm. that is, it's really a masterstroke of, of storytelling because they often can't do that in a movie. So how did you, uh, Luke, decide to pace yourself yeah. in regards to the amount of pages and the amount of story?
2: So I actually had a fair bit of help with Jonathan because Jonathan thinks quite cinematically when, and when he writes, he writes in a way, he has, an, he has an idea, he gives me loose guidelines basically, so he'll say this page is going to be three, four, five panel page, whatever, um, and, he, and he'll tell me what he wants in, in each panel, but also in the page as a whole, whether he wants me to look at it as a, his own big design element, or whether he wants me to just focus on the, the like, smaller panels, um, so that's quite nice, so for me, for working with Jonathan is very much a partnership, you know, he's written it, so I need to try and make it as true to his vision. But I've also got my own things. I also trained, you know, I went, I went and studied sequential art in, in Savannah, in Georgia. So, you know, I have my own knowledge base that I can bring to it that's slightly different to, to his. And he's he was very open to that. So, yeah, he, he was very helpful. I, I mean, I've had scripts from people where they give you just the dialogue and just a, like a, just a panel one and you have to make up yourself. And that's nice because you get freedom. But, this also means that there's more chance that you can butt heads with the writer because knowing someone who doesn't want to give you a lot of direction, it, it's, it's one of those things where I've always, I've always found personally that they have the set idea. The characters have to look a certain way. The environment has to look a certain way. Um, it has to be perfect, whereas Jonathan's was, I've got this. If you think it works, that's fine. If you don't think it works, let you know, tell me what you think and we'll change it. And it was, it was nice and fluid in that way. You don't want to tie it down too early.
0: Yeah. And Jonathan, for you, you, you had this idea uh, ruminating in your head. Um, what made you feel that Luke's art was the right fit to bring your imagination to life, if you will, and to, and to share it in a way where if he has an idea that might not have been the way you envisioned it, you were ready to uh, acquiesce, if you will, share that that ownership with him?
1: Um. So I think initially it was because those those animated shows were one of the main influences for the comic, and Luke's style is very cartoony. So I, I think immediately you could see that that he was he was going to be a good fit. Um, as it happened, it was kind of gestating for a couple of years, and it was partly I hadn't written anything of that length before, and I was a bit scared of it, and also. Luke didn't feel like his art was quite where he wanted it to be yet and by the time we decided to actually go for it we you know, we'd both got to a point where we, we felt like we were capable of doing it um, and I, I think initially maybe I was a little bit protective at the start so if Luke said oh, I don't think this is going to work as you've written it uh, why don't we try this um, I, I don't think I was too protective, but I think there was I, I was a little bit like, oh, I, I think it'll work the way I've written it. And after you've done that a couple of times and Luke has proved that, A, it wasn't going to work the way I wrote it and B, it was going to work much better with his idea. Then it's easy to kind of ease off a little bit and go, you know what, I completely trust him because all his ideas are are brilliant and if he says one of mine isn't going to work or that something's going to work better, he's been spot on every time. So it's, it's easy at that point to just sit back and go, you know what? He's just going to do his thing. We have very different skill sets. I'm not an artist. So I'm, I'm more than happy to trust link um, I think we work really well like that. We're both really open to feedback from each other. Um, and yeah, we, 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 we work, um, we we get along really well in a, in a working sense, you know, as we do on a, on a personal level. So yeah, it's a, it's a great working relationship.
0: Yeah. That's great. Because I think the key to collaboration, which, you know, like music, uh, comic books is totally collaborative, unless you're an artist writer and you don't want anybody around to, to collaborate with you. But it's so important sometimes as part of the creative team to also know, um, you know what, what's better is the end product. It may be better if we play the riff that way because it makes the song sound better as opposed to saying, I came up with that, leave it alone. Um, it's it's just as satisfying in a way when you can you know, relinquish that control and realize I'm really happy that the best page came out of what was both of our idea in the end. Like that's the whole point of it. So it's nice to see that you guys have that uh, like no ego to worry about who's going to get the control of this this part of the story
1: yeah and, and we would do cool things through throughout the whole process like we would do things for each other mm-hmm. so why i came up with the the idea for issue one and i knew what the story was going to be but then there was this whole like this is the first issue it's got to have a strong opening
2: mm-hmm.
1: and, I, and i thought about the the Bond movies with their cold open Mm. that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the story that's coming after. And, uh, Luke and I are both big fans of Jurassic Park. And Mm -hmm. it literally came down to me sitting down (laughs) going, what would Luke like to draw? What could I throw in that he's going to really get his teeth into? And it was clearly a dinosaur. (laughs) And then the, the kind of bad guy in issue one who I I didn't give a huge amount of description. I definitely mentioned Zangief from Street Fighter. Mm. Um, but I was like, "Oh, this is the bad guy in issue one," and I think Luke kind of drew him and had a bit of fun, knowing that it was something that I was going to look at, and then it was going to make me laugh. So we kind of, uh, yeah, bat that back and forth a bit, and and try and kind of give each other a little something.
0: Yeah, uh, Luke, which cartoons did you grow up watching? Because I I think me and me and Jonathan have had a lot of the same cartoon experiences. What was, you know, in your Saturday morning rotation or after-school rotation?
2: So, for me, I, I mean, I grew up I, I grew up on the same thing that you did, mm-hmm. uh, since the, but they were very much in the periphery. Um, for me, we can really look back on this, and this, might, this will date me, but not, I don't know whether that's a good, a good day or a bad <laughs> day, but like Dexter's lab, Namurai okay. uh, Jack, mm. Rugrats—you know—it was, was a bit of a was a bit of a thing for for the Wiz One of the characters, um, yeah, all those kind of ones. Uh, cow and chicken. All, so all those kind of Collodian and uh, Cartoon Network—the the real staples. When I, I kind of call it the golden period for me, those when you wake up on a Saturday, that's what you'd have in the morning. Dragon Ball Z, obviously, I think that one was a big one where you had—I used to like, save episodes so I could watch them all the weekend, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then then you had the stuff like the, the Power Rangers uh, and stuff
0: like that that I would also free into. So were, were you able to, because his um, references to Disco Knots, like just looking at the art, I mean, I can I kind of answer my question, but looking at the art, reading some of the dialogue in those preview pages, it really felt like the cartoons of that mid-'80s to mid-'90s era of dialogue, of the way it looked. Where did you take some of your references from into how you shaped those characters? Were you able to pull or did you go back and watch some of the cartoons that maybe Jonathan had watched to get an idea of what that feel would be?
2: That's that's exactly, so... You know, Jonathan had a, had a, a set, um, set group of cartoons that he, he initially was going to be kind of, we're going to try and recreate it, try and make it seem like those cartoons. But my artwork doesn't reflect that very well. And then we decided that probably be a bit too, for lack of a better a term, too clunky. Um, mm-hmm. So I went back and I looked at those things. And I'm like, what, what, are the, what are the best bits of these of these cartoons that I can draw from? Um, right. and, then I, and I kind of have like a little notebook and I use that and I brought my notes. But what also I did really, and that, the main thing that helps me is I... Built up a, a playlist of music, mm. you know. Yes. So uh, seventies disco songs, you know. I had help curating it from my um, from my wife's parents because they they love their disco music, so they helped create a bit of a list, all that kind of stuff. So I had I had like I don't know 100 odd songs where I would just put it on and put on repeat and lose myself, and I'll text you up and say, I'm, I'm listening to this and <laughs> I'm having a heck of a good time and I'm laughing when I'm drawing, and that's when I know I enjoy it is when I'm laughing at what I'm drawing because there's a lot of there's a lot of physical comedy as well as uh, dialogue comedy in it, and it was fun to be able to play with that. And that's and that's what kind of you know that music and those cartoons helped me bring that together.
0: Mm, that's great. I I wanted to ask you guys specifically. Let's talk about disco. Um, Jonathan, what made you want to have this BGS <laughs> meets the A Team with the disco vibe? well are you a fan of disco?
1: Everyone. Um, <laughs> I I don't know where. Where it came from, I genuinely don't know, but it, it's just a whole kind of era, and and um, disco specifically is a whole like genre that that's just fun. I think um, it, it, you watch if you watch a lot of you know the music videos from the time everyone's having fun; they don't really take themselves too seriously, and I've always kind of lend more towards comedy in terms of, you know, things that I want to watch and things that I want to write. So yeah, I don't know. Disco just seemed to kind of lend itself to to something you could have fun with and something that was gonna be was going to be amusing to people. Mm-hmm. Um and then the the kind of characters you can create around that, yeah. um, you can kind of go, you know, you can stretch it a bit and have fun with the characters and make them quite caricaturish.
0: Right, right. No, I when I saw the characters design, and you realize all of these costumes and all of these outfits are very disco, but they're all so unique and different. And it kind of I feel like (laughs) it's a weird example. But I feel like disco music um, gets maligned the way early 90s comics do but it's it's really fun. And there's a lot of, you can have a really good time with them. So when you look back nostalgically, you're like, it wasn't that bad. We just wanted to show how cool we were by saying it sucked. But it, it's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a good time.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think you're right. It gets, disco does get a really, yeah, bad reputation. And, and, and we kind of wanted it to, to have that disco feel, but also those kind of old comics that maybe people overlook. Which is, um, as well as being part of the, you know, the animated series being um, episodic, uh, it's also kind of a a throwback to those old comics as to why it's, you know, the stories are are kind of one and done, Um, and there's 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 there is a bit of an arc, but not so much. They're kind of each issue is a complete story because with those old comics, a lot of the time you can pick up a random issue. And you get a complete story, and it, it's all there for you. And then the next issue is something else. Um, so yeah, we wanted to kind of capture capture that feel. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think disco gets kind of a hard time. And I, uh, I wanted to just have fun with it. And the more I've listened to it for this project, I think the the more <laughs> I've realised that uh, I have liked disco all along. I just I just wasn't admitting it to myself. I've come out. I'm a, I'm a disco fan. <laughs>
0: you're, you're Everybody agree. likes disco. Yeah, I agree.
1: I was saying, yeah, look how much
2: disco's influenced modern music, like yeah. sound bites, and all that kind of stuff. It's very important, and and now being back when it was when I remember being when I was in the, when I was in the nineties, it was what twenty years back, wasn't it? Twenty come up thirty years back. Now it's it's further back, and you're like it's now becoming a kind of. A, a depth and a well that you could draw upon for, for cultural influence and all that kind of stuff, and I, and I find that interesting. It's it's something you don't want to lose because you know people glamorise the '60s for the punk rock and all that kind of stuff, the '90s for the hip hop and everything like that. You kind of want to keep the '70s the same because well it was its own unique entity, and I think that's that's important. So and that's why it's so fun. And like John said, it doesn't take itself seriously, and that's the whole point, you know. So.
0: You need you need a little bit more disco in the world, actually, because we we're we're, we're a culture that is wanting to be so free, but we're we're not we're not having fun anymore in a way. We're we're not we're taking we're starting to take ourselves a little too seriously and forgetting the fun that we could have. And it's I, I don't know if that's one of the the underlayer underlying you know ways of telling your story, Jonathan, of what you were saying. But I, I think that's a a great uh, metaphor. The music is a great metaphor because. I mean, I was thinking about it today in, in regards to this conversation as far as disco goes. And I'm thinking, what really is disco? Is it just like, is it the village people? Is it Rasputin and, and you know, songs like that that are just so clearly, you know, the Bee Gees and, and John Travolta? But I'm like, Earth, Wind, and Fire is kind of disco to me, but it's considered soul, right? But I think, and, and, off the Wall for Michael Jackson, some people would say, is his best album. That's a disco album, through and through. So we got to give it its due. Is it just, was it just pop music of the 70s, which I, I feel is what it was. It was how pop music sounded in the 70s. And there's a lot of good stuff there. Yeah, I think that's it. It's
1: it's kind of the name we give to pop music of a particular period. And Earth, Wind, and Fire are totally disco. Right. And and yeah, that first Michael Jackson album. Yeah, it's and and people kind of I think give other labels to them. Even like I'm sure people would describe that first uh, Michael Jackson album as Motown, even. But mm-hmm. it's not. It's disco.
0: Yeah that exactly like even jackson five you listen to some of those jackson five songs those are disco songs so yeah you know as much as we, like you guys said i've always liked disco we're just being you're just finally admitting it um there's there's a, a really cool it wasn't the greatest show it started off what i thought could have been great on netflix um the get down i don't know if you guys seen it it kind of tells a dramatized story of the history of hip-hop and block parties and what new york city was like at the time but Right along with hip hop and the block parties was the big disco scene, and that's where the gangsters used to hang out. So you kind of see it in a, a little bit of a different light when you watch a show that dramatizes that era of New York City in a somewhat biographical way.
1: I think I think there's also something kind of ridiculous about like gangsters and or any kind of like violent crime <laughs> and the disco scene. it, <laughs> it just doesn't you know, one under, one undermines the other. It yeah. just comes off absolutely ridiculous,
0: <laughs> which goes well with your stories, right? Like if that's if they're adventurers, if they're the A team that are, you know, disco knots that that's perfect. It really, I mean, I think there's definitely an audience for this, but I just find it interesting the way you decided to tackle these two things that people remember fondly but might be simultaneously embarrassed about i think that's a really interesting way of doing that (laughs) it's brave (laughs) i mean the embarrassment part never really
1: occurred to me i just thought ah people kind of love these things um and i do let's let's work (laughs) but yeah now now you now you point out that uh people are embarrassed by it maybe maybe we're not going to get this funded
0: (laughs) i think it's going to get funded no, it's all about, you know, we need a little bit more fun and, and lightheartedness. <laughs> um, Luke, you mentioned the playlist. What was, what was playing while you were drawing these, these pages? Because I, I always ask some writers who are influenced by listening to music, what would be the soundtrack for their comic book? I asked them, um, J.M. DeMatteis that for Moonshadow. Because he's a big music guy, and I just you know the the yeah. that book felt like it had music to go with it. So for you, what would be some of the songs on the playlist to to listen to while reading Disco Knots?
2: So um, I've got I've got a couple here. So Rusty Tint by Bernie M, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that one was yeah. kind of that was it must be at the top. Uh, Boogie Wonderland, Country mm. uh, Fighting. <laughs> then you got a bit of B G Staying Alive. Um, yeah, for me that was that was it. It kind of just it just took from there. Like the freak, mm-hmm. uh, the dancing queen, daddy cool. So yeah, you, as you can see, there, there's a definite there's a definite theme and a vibe and a feel. I, for me, I wanted it to be because of the way the story is. I wanted it to be. I mean, I, I don't think you can have it any other way, but upbeat. You know, and that and I think that's kind of it. Also, let help me with the with the colour choices that I use. I, I find that for me, disco also are very bright and vibrant and and quirky colours, almost. In a, in a way, a bit like an, like an 80s kind of colour theme to it. You know, have those bright those bright gradients as well. And I wanted that to be influenced directly by the music. So when I was colouring, I was doing that. I had the music on full blast and my headphones and I was just like, just take me where wherever you want me to go. I am totally, I'm going to be driven by the music on this. And it was, yeah. It's one of those things where it gives you a chance to, to draw, as an artist, to draw without thinking about it because you can always just get in your head and start you know, change things. Am I being too? You know, am I close enough to this? Am I appropriating things? Am I making? You know, am I making any wrong turns, or do I just enjoy it and and, and see what happens, and then I can edit those things afterwards? Which is what you know towards the end when we finished it, Jonathan and I sat down and we we fine tooth combed that the first issue just the whole way through. What could we do? What could we improve? What points are we touching on? What points are we missing? And it was just you know, it was nice. Yeah. And it, yeah, I wanted it to be fun vibrant, and, and nice with the of music so.
0: That's cool. I, I look forward to to reading it with uh with those songs because I it sounds really nerdy but especially when you had so much more free time that you were at home you couldn't go out anywhere really I started to read in a much more like immersive way where if i was reading you know something cosmic i would listen to music that reflected the the work or if i was reading sandman i would you know listen to the cure in the background because i felt like it would go and it, it makes the the whole work kind of come to life like you, you you feel it and it's interesting for you to say that you let the music kind of dictate the way you drew and the colors you you added and all those things because i think that's when you you really ad- adopt the the culture of what you're being immersed in i mean you can you know wear your hat to the side and and wear a hoodie and baggy pants and think you're 90s hip hop but when you just do be be who you are and y- it'll still come through when you just yeah. absorb it and i think that's that's a fair way to go about it
2: yeah um yeah, exactly. i was i wasn't sorry no go ahead. i was not trying to imitate or try because i was i was born in the 70s i didn't grow up in the 70s so mm-hmm. and a disco era so for me it was more of an homage, and I was trying to be sympathetic towards towards it, and not trying, you know, caricature it too too much. And I think the music having The music music's always good for music uh, for me. You know, it's it's always a good baseline for the decade or for where you're working. And so if you if you use that, and you're, and you're true to that and you, and you have a feeling with it, you can't go too far wrong when you're depicting things. You may get things wrong, like there may be certain costume elements that I. I used that are, are wrong but they work in disco notes because it's the disco notes right and i don't want it to be you know that's the whole where it takes it too seriously it's not like a recreation of the sentence because i couldn't do that because i wasn't around or at the disco and i wasn't around them, so i couldn't recreate that mm-hmm. it's my version of it
0: right right how about for yeah. you uh jonathan did you have any any disco songs that were coming to mind while you were writing the story in your head
1: uh, I mean, they all came to mind when I was writing. <laughs> um, I, if, if, if you go through, um, yeah, they are definitely, what, four or five disco songs directly referenced. Um, and then we've actually, we're kick-starting issue one, but we have four issues written and drawn and they're all Beautiful. named after different disco songs and all full of disco references. So, yeah, it was just, Kind of listening to those songs and seeing what what jumped out at me, uh, what might be uh, you know a character I could use or a, a plot element, um, and it's it's all everything in those four issues that we've done. It's all come from disco songs.
0: That's great. That that is so cool, and I'm really happy to hear that you guys already have that far ahead of you, set up and planned. Because I think that's probably the best marketing tool when it comes to a Kickstarter for people to know like this is. This is a finished thing. This is something ready to be given to us, which uh, m- might make people you know, initially nervous about backing something, but when they know the product is here and, and it's ready, it, they're much more confident to, to join in on it. So that's great. Well done, guys.
1: Um, yeah, uh, hopefully the the fact that we have four issues done shows like a, a commitment to the project uh, and also that um, uh, people are going to know that it's not, you know, they're not going to get issue one back and successful, then issue one in, it's all there, it's all ready to go.
0: Right. So what I'm hoping for is that even if by chance, which I don't think it, that, that will be the case, but if it isn't funded this time around, you guys still intend to release these books since you've already committed so much time and effort to, to telling this story, Correct.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll do something with it. It'll definitely, you know, yeah. pop up on Comicsology, um, some other digital apps. Yeah, if if we can, maybe um, a, you know, a small print run. Um, so we, yeah, we we definitely intend to do something with it. Um, see, working would be would be the idea. We'll we'll do something.
0: Good. That's great. It's always it's always good to, to see that people are, are still going to follow through with uh, with the project, regardless of what happens. And and I'm excited to read it because the way you guys have talked about it, the, the, the collaborative um, effort behind it, it makes you almost root for this book to, to get into your hands because it sounds like it's going to be fun, it's going to be funny, and there's going to be a little bit of depth to it, which is always, I think, the, the trifecta of, of a good story. So you were saying Jonathan about, um, being a fan of comedy. Um, what are some of the things that influenced your writing to, to make the book hit those notes? I'm sure there's going to be a lot of puns and little, you know, almost dad jokes, if you will, but those can hit in the right funny bone. So where, where do you get your comedy inspiration from?
1: (laughs) Uh, I I, I think I'd be Doing a disservice to, to any any comedies I like to 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 say that they influence *The <laughs> State um, no, it is it is. Th- th- there are a lot of a lot of dad jokes and puns, um, and it was supposed to be that that kind of silly humour. Um, but my yeah, my interest in comedy goes back to when I was at primary school, and uh, we would have uh, uh, on on a day night. Uh, the, the we have a TV channel BBC2 and it would be comedy pretty much all night uh, that and Channel 4 and you kind of flip between the two so it would start when you got home from school it was Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then The Symptoms would be on at some point and Ren and Stimpy and it would just go into the evening uh, so there was, they would re-show um, uh, like classic British sitcoms like Blackadder and Red Dwarf and I just remember being like entranced by them. I, I loved these, these comedy shows, and the fact that it was live and you could hear an audience laughing, which you don't really get anymore. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it very quickly became evident to me that I wanted to make people laugh. I did to do what those what those shows were doing to me, and I, I'd stay up like, well into the night after my parents had gone to bed on a. On a on a Friday night, because I didn't have school in the morning, just watching uh, reruns of old sitcoms and animated shows and whatever was on, I was I was watching it.
0: Yeah, I'm always interested to uh, to see. I know that culturally, England and you know North America, there's a lot of our our pop culture that is shared with whether it's the television shows, the music, but it's always interesting to know exactly like what did you guys. Get there. What was popular? Was there something more that was popular there that, you know, was also popular here, but you guys appreciated it more? I'm always interested to hear that. So Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was something, you know, as popular, I guess, in England as it was here. Were were there some other sitcoms that had that cultural impact for you guys during that, you know, that 90s and 80s time of, of sitcoms being so big, like the one thing we could all watch together?
1: I think that there were, but that's not what I... I, I was very specifically into British sitcoms at, okay. at that time at such a young age. Um, and I don't think there are really things that would have transferred... I know there was a Red Dwarf re-America that I don't think lasted very long because it was terrible. Um, <laughs> and I, I assume Blackadder has never really crossed over. No, I never um, But, like... As I've as I've got older, like I've realised at, at that time as well, Seinfeld was huge in America. Huge, and it just wasn't here. It was mm-hmm. it was on at about two a.m. on a mm-hmm. on a Thursday or something. Stupid, um, <laughs> a, and people don't really know of Seinfeld here, um, but. The kind of your like comedy aficionados, the people really into their comedy, they do know Seinfeld, gotcha. and it's it's, we're massively popular in the US. It's very niche here, and it, it's just for like comedy buffs. Yeah, um, and yeah, it's something that I that I came to years later, but at, at that time when I was first starting to be influenced by comedy and sitcoms, and it, it was all uh, all British stuff.
0: Right. There's there's something. Um special about British humor and, and British comedians, it, it, it cuts a little bit differently when they don't even have to say a punchline necessarily for, for it to be funny. There's, there's certain reactions that and the way that the language, the way you guys use the language, I find it almost to hit me a little bit differently. And I appreciate that. Like when I listen to or even watch, um, uh, I forgot, Afterlife. I don't know if you guys have seen that with Ricky Gervais. And it's, it's dark, oh, yeah. but the yeah. way that he, he reacts yeah. to people is just so funny. And I don't know if that could ever come off in an American comedy like that. So I, I, I think it's really cool that, you know, comedy buffs are the ones who, that crossover appeal, they really know what's funny on an international scale. How about for you, Luke, where there's some, uh, some sitcoms? And, and I guess in the, in the body language of your art, there's got to be obvious humor so that the reader can, you know, collaborate with the with the speech bubbles as well as the the, the body language were the things that influenced you in your drawing comedy, if you will.
2: I'd actually, to be honest, this is the first real comedy thing that I've I've drawn. Um, when I do my sketchbook stuff, I try to be as as caricature try and bring out comedy in my artwork. But this is the first time I've done it in, in a script, and the one thing I was I was always told I remember being told is like an old principle when you're doing an action push it so far past ridiculous that when you come and do it again you're going to bring it back and you're going to tighten up you're going to tighten up and that's what you do right so that was when when i saw a funny moment in this i was going to push it to an extreme point in my thumbnails where you know it was never going to look good it yeah, has a panel, but when I did it into the, the ink work, and then when I then went into coloured it and all that kind of stuff, I would naturally bring it back to a point where it looked natural, mm. and that's, that's what. And it, mm. yeah, that was for me. You know, growing up when I, when I used to watch Nickelodeon TV channel, and then about 7 p.m., I remember they used to switch to something called the Paramount Channel, and that's where I used to get. That was what I, so yeah. It would swap, swap at 7 p.m. and then it would go have like yeah, mash. Um, you have moonlighting. You have, <laughs> uh, uh, Fr- you have Frasier, You'd have Seinfeld. These kind of what I would call old school sitcoms. But yeah, I would say they definitely, they definitely kind of. Some of them weren't always obvious comedy, but they, you know, I drew enough from them subconsciously that I look, I can look back and see where they have influenced what I do, and you know, it's. I think it's always nice to have that framework. You, you always have to destroy, fretting: Am I making it as as true? A sitcom is not always true to true to life. Is it is a, the it's a character that like, resonates with it, and, and I say like, the way people stand around in, in in a room, in a circle, and they talk and they go through things. That's what I wanted the disc to feel like as well. You know, once a, once a mission is done, go team.
0: Right, right. No, that's that's great, <laughs> and what that's a good block of of comedy, even though they were. Uh, the old school uh, comedies that you as you said, they, they kind of stand the test of time in being reflective of the time that they were in so that's that's good reference points for, for to draw comedy from and yeah, you're right to have you know those ensembles where they're in a group setting and and it's the interaction between those characters that you know and love in small rooms that made a lot of those com- comedic moments, just like in Fraser when he's talking to the dog. And there's just the, the eye contact yeah. between them. It's priceless. It never gets old. Um, we've we spent a lot of time <laughs> not getting to your origin stories. So, you know, one guy wants to draw comics. One guy wants to write comics. Where did, When did you guys fall in love with the medium of comic books?
1: Uh, Luke, you can
2: go first. <laughs> okay. So for me, it was, it was quite late. So it was about 20, 2013 for me. So I, I was working just a desk job. Um, and I met one of my friends. Kind of, I kind of showed that I had a bit of an interesting in I wanted to get to know it a bit more, and he introduced me to Batman Year One, the very like the Frank Miller stuff, the very uh, like that uh, kind of seminal DC stuff with Batman and, and stuff like that. And then he he actually introduced me to Preacher. Um, and a few other bits and pieces. You know, they're they're classics in their own right. Right. Um, and I just, I just, I just gobbled them up. I, I was buying books every week, and I was reading them, and I was getting. And that's kind of where, I, when I decided I wanted to to pursue comics, I was drawing at my and my job, I doodling on on a notepad. Um, and I realised I was getting better as, as I was reading these books and seeing how these artists tackled it. Like, you know, you had Jim Lee with his hyperrealism. I was seeing how he tackled the way that certain perspectives, and I was like, okay, well, I can, I can draw faces. getting better. I know what I'm weak at, and what I'm strong at. And then I decided to go and try and, and study it and make a make a go of being a professional artist. So I went and studied in Savannah at SCAD, and then I came back, and that's when I became an art intern at uh, Titan. So everything kind of stemmed really from 2013, where I decided to pick up that pencil, which I hadn't, I hadn't done since I was oh, about 13. You know, and at that point I was coming on to twenty twenty-three. So now I was 10 years where I hadn't really picked up a pencil, or done any drawing, decided that, you know, I could do this. You know, I, I could be good enough to do this. And I just progressed and I pushed and then I went and studied. And then I, I, you know, I went there and they broke me down. I thought I knew stuff. I didn't, I didn't know anything. Broke me down. I went I like, You know, sometimes I was spending hours just drawing straight lines on a page just to be able to get that confidence in my lines. That's the level of breaking down that they did. And then they rebuilt me into to why I am now with my own style. So, yeah, it's kind of like a, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a weird one because it's very late, but I would not change any of it because it's now led me to having disco noughts, you know, with, we've got four issues done, ready ready to go. We're just looking to get them printed and get them out. So, you know, I mean, I've been very, very lucky.
0: What was that like for you going from, you know, where, where from England? to being in Savannah, Georgia, you said, culturally and yeah. and in the the way that maybe you understood comics and sequential art to now learning it in America. what Was there any sort of uh, culture shock for you or even culture shock in regards to the comic books?
2: Yeah, so one big thing was going to Georgia is everything's a lot slower. It's a lot slower pace of life. Right. Uh, that was one thing I never... And I still don't think I ever really got over it, you know, living in in and around London, you everything's fast paced, it's city pace. You have to go there. If you're not going there, you're not doing it quick enough, whatever. So I already had some of that in in building, so it was weird. But then going to SCAD and and learning, you know, I think there's a lot of people who fall in love with the idea of drawing comics. They think it's this glamorous thing. Oh, I, I draw comics for a living. It's it's hard, it's tough work, right? You know, it's deadlines. It's you make it, you're good enough. you You have to work at it. You it's not just you're not just an artist. You're a costume designer. You're a weatherman. You you're an architect. You're all these mm. different things wrapped up into one bundle. And I think you know it's easy to think oh, I could do that, but then you know come to to have, handing in your first assignment, the first time I ever did anything, I had a two week assignment, and you know I struggled, and I you, know, you do, but you realise that your job is to hit that deadline. Otherwise, that book's not going to go out, and you're not going to get paid. And that's what you need to understand. And that, and that was what that was a big culture shock for me as well because my art has always been for me. I always did it for my own enjoyment. Now I was doing it for a client or for for a purpose, and it makes it a very different ballgame.
0: So, so I guess the collaboration, doing something like this, disco knots, brings it all back together where it's fun again to be able to be yes. creative, and that fun has returned, but. You you got there through the discipline of learning that craft properly.
2: Absolutely, I don't, I'm 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 in the smallest way, and that's what I did with with my eyes. I broke it down. And said, what am I weak at? Figure drawing. What do I need to get better at? This this this. What what can I you know what can I use? How can I do it? Go to life drawing, do all these things, and I broke it down and I made it like a sport because it is. it's like a low impact sport for lack of a better analogy and that's what i wanted to, to get across it if i treated my art with the same discipline that i treated my cricket with you know i could i could do i could do great things and you know, when we when we first thought the idea for for Noughts, i said to jonathan i pulled him i said i don't think my art's there yet i really don't i think i've still got a little way to go and then two years down the line when the pandemic hit and you know I had more time, I was able to improve and that's when I said to Jonathan, I think, you know, I can do this person and I think I'll be, you know, I'll be good at it and that's what it is, it's just knowing your limits and knowing what you're good at but using that discipline that I've learned from SCAD to make Disco Noughts the best comic that I can make and, you know, I'll look back at this in 10 years and go, oh, it could be better but actually, right now, this is some of the best work I've produced and and I will defend that to anybody you know so I'm very proud of it and it's fun and that's the thing you said it's fun and I love
0: that yeah and and 10 years from now you should be able to look back and say I can do that better but you should also be honest with yourself like you you just did and say at that time I really gave it the Mm -hmm. best what I had and that's that's what will will stick with people and they'll they'll stick with you because I mean you look at you know early early John Byrne stuff I don't know if you you uh, are familiar with some of it. It's good and it makes you want to see yeah. more. But then when you get to, you know, days of future past or some of the things he does with Fantastic 4 and compare it, it it should look better. But it was that initial yeah. that initial effort and and the the quality that will make people stick with you. So I think you're you're on the right track for sure. Um, Jonathan, for you, what were what was your somewhat origin story for comic books and, and working in the, for Titan, you said, how did you get there?
1: Uh, so my, my, my kind of first exposure to comic books was, um, like children's comic books that we have over here called the Beano and the Dandy. Um, I think the Beano still running and has been since the, I don't know, the forties or something. It's, it's, it's a really long running comic. Um, I don't think it is anymore. But when I was a kid, it was still printed on that kind of pulpy paper. Um, and then, as I got a bit older, uh, it became uh, Asterix and Tintin. Mm. And then I, I kind of had a, a period of time where I, I wasn't really into comics because I didn't, I didn't know where to progress from there. Um, because uh, you know you can't just pop into most news agents and pick up a comic. Um, you know, they, they're only really available in specialist comic shops. So I didn't, I didn't know where to get them. So I kind of, lost touch with comics. Um, and then there was a documentary over here by one of our really famous chat show hosts. Um, and he was basically just explaining his love of Steve Dickpo. And uh, he, he, he kind of spoke about Ditko's whole career and the whole point of the documentary was that he was he was kind of building up to meeting Ditko himself at the end um and it was it was, I think it was partly seeing Ditko's artwork um and partly hearing about the the kind of more kind of strange elements of Ditko's career like Mr. A um that made me think um you know, I, I, I kind of want to investigate this guy. But it was also the, the host's kind of uh, just enthusiasm for comics. And he clearly had such a love for these comics um, that it made me want to wanna go and check them out. So I, you know, Googled uh, comic shops in London and I went out the next day and I picked up a couple issues of uh, Straczynski's Spider-Man and a couple of grab bags of just, you know, random assorted comics and, and that was it I then you know I read them enjoyed them started doing my research you know where do I go next what what book do I need to buy next and how do I build my collection and how do I how do I get mm-hmm. into this and learn about it and um, and then the, the shop that I that I'd happened to go to was called Forbidden Planet and I started going there regularly and then one day they had a, a sign in the window that they needed Christmas uh, Christmas staff and I applied And I was still there a year later, even though I was just supposed to be there for Christmas. Uh, And the company that owns Forbidden Planet uh, is called Titan, and they have a a, a comics publishing kind of arm. Uh, So all the vacancies for Titan Comics and Titan Books uh, would all go up in the store, in the staff room, for for us to apply if we were interested. Um, yeah, so I just took a punt. I was just working in the store. I kind of I felt like I knew my stuff at that point. It was an entry level position as an assistant editor, and I, I thought I'd go for it. And yeah, luckily got it.
0: That's awesome. Forbidden Planet, if I'm not mistaken, also has stores in North America. Specifically, I'm thinking New York City, and I think the the one in New York City has had a few people go from working on staff as well to working for. Uh, big name publishers one um, Vita Ayala I think it, it was worked there at that same location as Matthew Rosenberg I think worked there so it's so interesting to hear you have somewhat of a similar story breaking into the industry by working for uh, Forbidden Planet similarly that's very cool what were what were the joys or, or the headaches of of going from being a fan of comics and this being your comic shop where you had fun to now being your place of work did you start to you know hate the place that was your refuge?
1: Yes. <laughs> 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 well, I, for starters, I just I want to circle back to, to something you just said. Uh, yeah, they, they the Forbidden Planet in New York began as part of the same company as the chain here, but. Various things happened, and it's now a slightly different company. But I actually spoke to Matt Rosenberg. Uh, He came in to to RFP. He was doing a signing. And uh, when he was working in in the New York store, uh, he was the guy that, um, I'm going to get the name wrong, but uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, who played Kingpin in Daredevil he came into the store and he went to Matt Rosenberg and said, Oh, I've got this part. I'm going to play this guy. Show me some comics. And wow. at the point, Matthew Rosenberg was in us doing a signing with us. He was signing the Kingpin comic that he'd just written. So it's this weird full circle. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, uh, so I, I started working at Titan and yeah, it, I was there two and a half years and at the time I left I could not pick up a comic I didn't want to go to a comic con I didn't want to read a comic and I felt really bad about it because I love comics Mm -hmm. and it's it's a it's an art form that I love and it's an industry that I I mean no okay maybe I don't love the industry actually I was gonna say (laughs) it's but it's not I love I love the actual medium of comics. I love the art form, I right. love the writing and the art that goes in it. I, I do not like the industry at all. Um but yeah, I just I could not pick up a comic. I didn't want to. It had it had taken all of my passion for it away. Um in a way that I could even I could see that, that was a really sad thing. Um but I just couldn't get through that at the time, and it, it took me a little while until I until I started reading again, and yeah, buying comics again.
0: So what made you? I get. Well, so what was it then that after having that experience where you you know you got sick of it, you didn't want to look at another book, which completely makes sense. What made you now want to write your own book and and go that to not only? I mean, you're not in the industry, but. You're adjacent, I guess you can say, where you're trying to, to sell a book of your own now. What changed your your approach?
1: Um, I think it was just time, and I, I I actually moved from Titan back to Forbidden Planet for for a while, um, and it was although while I yeah I just wasn't interested in looking at comics. I think being around people who love comics again rather than the business of comics
0: right that's
1: what kind of eventually kind of got me back and uh, then I kind of started freelance editing again and I've been I've been doing stuff kind of privately and I'm also working with humanoids at the moment and it's yeah it's it's a much it feels much better now it feels like it's it's not sapping that love from me and yeah yeah part of what built it built it back was just yeah just I just needed time away and it was it was seeing how much other people love it made me kind of realize how much I I loved it still um yeah and then I started you know taking books off the shelves again and flicking through them and then buying the odd comic and it kind of all came back. But I needed that, that time away from it.
0: Yeah, I think, I think sometimes that's necessary. I know for myself, I stepped away from comics when I was collecting again pretty regularly, right around when the New 52 began or was about to launch. I said, this is a good time now for me to just have what I got, read what I got, because they're just scrapping everything that I held dear to me. But then I uh, two years later with some of the films that came out, uh, I got back into wanting to be a part of the culture again. But I needed to miss it just a little bit to have oh wow I want to read that now because at least I know it's it's worthwhile. I guess you can say. But yeah, when I after I got back into it, the podcast begins. So you you know history uh, tells tells that story. But um, what's what's the comic book culture like for you guys in England? Because the the friend that I have. Uh, Dave Molyneux is his name. Shout out to Dave. He says that it was always hard for him to be able to find places to, to get comics. Maybe that's for his location. But for you guys, is there you know a culture within the, the city, close to the city areas that you live in?
1: Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it depends where you live. I think there's definitely people in parts of the country that live a long way from, from their nearest comic store. Um, luckily, in London, there's um, there's always been quite a few. There were a lot more in the past, and sadly, they've they've closed down over time. Um, but there are, you know, a couple of really well-known stores um, there, and there, there are a few more kind of local ones, more suburban ones. Um, but those tend to only really do, you know, Marvel and DC. You've got to go into central London to get the more, you know, more image, dark horse um, or, you know, even more indie than that. Um, because the uh, the kind of the, the more local suburban ones just, you know, that's all their customer base is interested in. It's Marvel and DC and that's what as uh, their bread. So they, they can't really stray from that.
0: Was that similar to in, in Forbidden Planet? Were you working there? Did they or did they have because of the name and because of the recognition and connection to the industry? Did they have more of that all around selection?
1: Yeah, Forbidden Planet have everything. Their their diet um, and any given week is massive. It's huge. Um, it. It takes a, a full day to to process all of it. They get them on a on a Tuesday rather than a Wednesday, and it takes all of Tuesday to process that stock, to then get them out on a Tuesday night ready for Wednesday. Um, and yeah, and they've got everything. Um, the kind of smaller like Ahoy and Scout, and you know those uh, Action Lab, uh, those those kind of smaller publishers. Yeah, they they I think they try to stop... Uh, you know as diverse a, a range as they can
0: yeah because i mean those books there are usually a, a launching pad for a lot of uh titles that later will be marvel in dc so i think it's good for even the big companies to be in stores where all of these other books also exist even though it's competition eventually these writers crisscross with each other so that name recognition and that uh I'm trying to think of the word here but that that Synchro, not synchronicity, that's not the right one, but it's got to be somewhat simpatico where you want everybody to kind of have, like when you go to a con, you know, you don't want just 10 creators there or 10 artists there. You want to have that mixture because you feel the whole sense of the organism that's comics. So that's cool. That's very cool. Um, what are some of the things you guys are enjoying reading now? Speaking of, you know, comics and, and the love of them, or for, in your case, getting back into them, what are some of the things you guys are enjoying?
1: Well, I've kind of. Uh, over the years I've kind of dipped into Marvel and DC and I've got a lot of Marvel and DC books but I tend to kind of try and stay away from collecting them on a long-term basis I just find it's a it's a really deep hole that I don't want to fall into <laughs> uh, yeah yeah so at the moment I've um, uh, I, I've been trying to to get a lot of uh, Baker and Philip stuff I'm I really enjoy what they do, and I enjoy the fact that they have uh, got to a point in their careers where they can do whatever they like. And I don't think Image even vet what they do. They they, they have this deal with Image where they tell Image what they're going to do, um, and I think that's that's a really cool place to be. And I love that they they only really work with each other, um, and it's you know it, I think it's it's an aspiration. For me, like you know, I was lucky enough to meet Luke, and we work well together. And I would like to, if possible, just continue to work with Luke, um, because I, you know, I don't have these big, you know, big aspirations to write for Spider Man or Daredevil or Batman. I, I just, you know, want us to create our own stories. Um, so I like that, that that's what Rubaker and Phillips do. So I've been, I I've read their latest two, well, the first two reckless books. Um, and before that, Pulp, uh, which I loved Pulp because it has that kind of noir crime thing that they do so well. But it also had that Western element. And I'm a huge Western fan. Um, I've just bought but haven't read yet um, I bought the whole run of uh, Gotham Central, and I'm really looking forward mm. to getting stuck into that. Um, and uh, I've I've got the third. They just re-released the Criminal Deluxe editions, and I got the first one, and I'm I'm uh, gonna gonna get the next couple. So yeah, just really enjoying their stuff and uh, enjoying kind of finding new things especially on Kickstarter and more kind of indie stuff and seeing what's out there.
0: Yeah, very cool. So you're in a little bit of a of a Brewbreaker hole right now. It's it's hitting all of your the the things that you like, Brewbreaker and Phillips. I got to get into them a little bit more. I I am a fan of Brewbaker's work, but I haven't done enough of my digging deep into his um, his uh, creator own stuff which everybody says is the best thing you can buy, uh, you know, whenever they it's on the shelf, that's that's uh, a definite hit. So I got to do a little bit more of that. How about for you, Luke?
1: So
2: uh, I was, when I started getting to comics, I was about around the, the new 52. So 2012, 2013, I guess it would be. It would be 2013 when I started like, with the, the Capullo Snyder run on Batman, Tony Daniels uh, doing Detective Comics, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was kind of, that was i have done, the, done the, the classics, but I kind of set my base with that. And um, going from there, I kind of pushed it. When I went to Scat, I learned more about French comics, so Bon Desenet. um, and that included stuff. I, I've got a, a book called Green Manor, which is just, to me, is is perfection. It's just, it goes to show how a cartoony style doesn't limit what you can do. So uh, Donny Bodart, the, the artist, he he's got a cartoony style, but his stuff can look gritty, it can look dark, it can look, you know, light and cheerful, and, uh, all these different things, but it doesn't change. You know, it's still cartoony and it's brilliant. So that was a big uh, thing for me. But recently, I, mean, I would have to say, I don't have a lot of, um, a lot of space in my place. So <laughs> comic, comics wise, I'm not able to collect. I, I tend to do more of the, the collections so or the, the, the volumes rather than say, it's single issues. Yeah. And I had had loads. I had to get rid of of quite a few of them. But I had like The Boys, all that kind of stuff. So some real good series. Um, I tend to be quite picky and choosy. I think also for me as well is when I'm drawing or when I'm drawing comics, especially disconauts, if I'm looking at other people's artwork, I tend to then compare myself to them. Mm, And that's a very very dangerous battle to to fight. Because then you say, oh, my work looks nothing like theirs. Well, of course it's not because it's not their work. So I try and keep myself within my own bubble when i'm doing my own work so that it doesn't affect me now that i'm out of doing disco until hopefully mm-hmm. the next the next set that jonathan whips up um i'll get back into comics but i haven't really i haven't really got a set plan i just tend to whatever i have a look at on say i have a look i have a browse of image or comicsology or whatever and see what takes my fancy i mean it's only recently that i red shirtless bear fighter which you know it's one of those comics which i've heard so much about but i've only just got around to it because i've been so deep in doing other things and trying to progress myself that i haven't had a chance to to go for it right so yeah
0: yeah that that's such an interesting uh, i love listening to the way artists uh interpret good comics and what what is uh really hits them and then on the other side writers when they, Their approach to comics and, and the overall feel they get from it. So oh, you always get two different takes and, and you're able to appreciate the medium in, in a, with a different eye. Because I can't write or draw. Um, so I love hearing how writers and artists are able to you know, share that. I have some artist friends that I've made through the podcast that are local. Because Toronto is a really great city for comic creators. that um, the, the things that they like are very different based off of their art style. And, and the artists that influenced them. But I really appreciate your point there that when I'm in the, in the zone, I can't be doing too much of browsing everyone else's work. Because either it could influence what you're doing or make you you know feel that, I guess the, the term is imposter syndrome. Like, uh, I'm not that guy. I can't do it. So very, very interesting. Yeah. How about when it comes to, um, you know, for, for you, Jonathan, for influencing your storytelling are there things that, you know, when you're in that um, creative space or need inspiration, are there things that you turn to to kind of spark that idea for you and then you're off to the races?
1: Uh, it's Not really. Like if, if I'm stuck on a story idea or something, I won't really pick up a comic or, you know, watch a film or something. I, I will – but my big thing if I'm stuck or, or if I need inspiration is to walk I just I just put on my shoes and go out, and uh, often by the time I get back, I will have something. I will have solved problem problem. Um, I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if it's you know something to do with the fresh air or something. But yeah, I won't I won't turn to uh, you know something that someone else has created and and hope that that will solve my problem. Mm-hmm. I will I will think it through and uh, yeah and and you know if I've been out walking for an hour and i still haven't solved it i will walk for another hour and i will just stay out until until i have something
0: yeah no i it it makes complete sense because a lot of times when you are taking in other uh, another medium whether it's a television show or a movie or even a comic book to say like how did this guy get out of the problem what can i take from that you almost you're you're handcuffing yourself to saying ah it's not the original idea but it's like people who Oftentimes, the best ideas come in the shower, right? For some reason, they they come up with a music lyric or a walk. So it's it makes sense that you just need that time with you and your your imagination. And it might be something that you know, that, you know, it might come from somewhere that is similar to an Indiana Jones moment, but it be, it's still yours because it's just inspired from there without you realizing it which is kind of what we all we all tend to lean towards, those things that, well, that reminds me of, of that. Even though it's not that, Stranger Things kind of reminds me of the Goonies, which I love. But it's completely different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think most ideas will come from somewhere, even if you don't realize it. They come from something you've seen or experienced or, you know, comes from life. Uh, so I, I guess that's, that's what... Um, kind of my walks give me the the chance to think about things that I've seen or watched or whatever <laughs> um, or ex- without actually sitting down and watching something and going, well, how did these get around this problem? It's more that it just, you know, it ruminates in there somewhere and, and my brain figures it out.
0: Yeah, that's great. So before we wrap up, I want you guys once again to just, uh, Give us all of the goods for the Kickstarter and for Disco Knots. When when is it? How long is the Kickstarter for? I know it's taking place now. When does it end? What are some of the, the tiers? Go ahead and tell us the goods for it.
1: Uh, yeah, so it's it's ongoing at the moment as we speak. There are seven days left, uh, so it finishes on the first. Uh, we're. Uh, Currently 76% of the way there, so we're almost there. Um, I don't know if you have this saying, I you probably don't, I think it's a very British thing, but we would call this squeaky bumper. <laughs> 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 um, uh, yeah, uh, so we've got you know the uh regular, you know, digital edition, the physical copy, we've got uh, a Kickstarter exclusive cover which. Um, Luke really did something there. <laughs> I I'd, I'd advise anyone to go and have a look on the Kickstarter page because the uh, the Kickstarter exclusive cover is really something. Um, we've got a few exclusive prints, and uh, the in the kind of higher tiers we've got some original art by Luke. He's doing some sketches, uh, some colour sketches, and the very top tier has a limited edition blank sketch variant which Luke is going
0: to sketch on very cool and it ends it it ends seven more days you said from when we're recording this now
1: it ends on the 1st of July
0: 1st of July so I'm going to have this posted people will be listening to this on what day is it tomorrow the 24th so they will be listening on the 24th of June so we still have time to back this project and be involved in in something very cool very exciting and I think um I think it's going to be refreshing i'm looking forward to it guys uh thank you so much for reaching out to me and doing this i hope we can do this again because i have you know more questions to ask you guys and when maybe issue two is on the way we can we can do this again or if not we can just do a top 10 disco songs if we want to (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much luke thank you jonathan
1: Thank thank you so much for having us
0: be sure everybody to uh to check out the kickstarter disco knots coming your way keep an eye out for jonathan stevenson and luke kemp and uh you know what maybe england and italy will face each other somewhere down the road in this euro cup and we'll uh we'll That's message right, each other some trash talk <laughs> <Sounds good. laughs> all right everybody thank you so much and we will be back soon